Hello, my friends, and thanks for tuning in to Captain Roy's Rusty Rocket Radio Show, the UK Geek Science Fiction Fantasy and Horror Podcast. This is episode 513, taped on Friday, the 1st of December, 2023, at 23.38. 59. And of course, as soon as I start speaking, the traffic picks up. Tonight, thank you for joining me on a revisit of the Hammer House of Horror 1980, episode, episode 4, Growing Pains. Before we do all that, let's explore the revisit journal. So, yes, welcome back to Castle Royenstein, Royenstein, my delightful friends and fellow weirdos. Earlier today, I collected and tested my Christmas present, then gave it to my mother to wrap. And now, of course, I have to forget what I bought myself on their behalf. As I said earlier on Twitter, in the old days, that would have entailed numerous gin and tonics. That is no longer the case. I'm not sure how I'm going to manage to forget that. Maybe the sheer exhaustion of podcasting too much will do that for me. What else did I do today? Well, a few hours ago, I turned my Twitter into a hellscape. Because you know how good at social media I'm not. (laughs) I watched some of Mayfair Witches. That's a new adaptation of, or the first adaptation of, Anne Rice's series about witches. And that's on iPlayer. And... Most important of all, I suppose, I unstuffed my snooter. I was going to say great big snooter, but it's not that big. With a vocal zone fruit pastel. Yep, seems to be working. My nasal passages seem wider. As I said at the top of the show, Hammer House of Horror Growing Pains, because tonight we are stepping into my Vimana. Currently parked at the corner of my studio over there, being dusted by Feigl, my butler. And we will fire up the revisitation engine and warp back to the year 1980 to continue my revisit of Hammer House of Horror Growing Pains, which I've now said for the at least third time. Because I have noticed in earlier pods, I don't tell you what I'm actually going to be talking about until five to ten minutes in, which is really annoying. Compared to the way I'm doing it now, which is also really annoying. That is also, as I've said before, the fourth episode of the iconic British horror anthology TV series from 1980. God, how many times have I said 1980? It's all going pear shape. Anyway, 
let me arrive at the point. The point is, if you want to follow along, the DVD is widely and cheaply available, and it can also be streamed free on ITVX in the UK. And oh god, my voice is cracking. Ah, that's better. Ah, sip of water. Um, hmm. I've forgotten one. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yep. So, please endeavour to follow along. You don't have to. I mean, you can just listen to me blar on about this stuff. But it is infinitely more enjoyable when you participate. And that participation is part of the reason I turned Twitter into a hellscape earlier today. Uh, let's just move on. As usual, let us start off with some notes. Beginning with notable cast. An actress called Barbara Kellerman played the main role. Laurie, the mother. She is also known, amongst other things, for playing the white witch, Jadis, in the BBC's The Lion, The Witch and The Wardrobe 1988 TV miniseries. We also have Desmond Ambrose of Channel 4's Desmond's as Mr. Ngenko. I'm not going to explain what Desmond's are. God, I suppose I have to because there are people who aren't as old as I am. It was a sitcom set in a barbershop. I think it was in Brixton or Deptford or Peckham. <laughs> One of those three places. Not important. It was wildly popular. Okay. The director was Francis McGahey. I know nothing of neither do I know anything about the writer Nicholas Palmer. Now you're gonna say that that's an extraordinary lack of research on your part, Roy, and you'd be correct. On the other hand, you should see the length of the show notes for this episode. You will be glad that I'm not talking too much about the minutiae of cast and crew. Onto the producer, at the absolute definite risk of definitely repeating myself, that was Roy Skeggs. He was responsible for Hammer House of Horror, the TV show. He was an ex-Hammer Films chap who left to form a spin-off called Cinema Arts, returned to Hammer Films, moved production to Buckinghamshire, and created Hammer House of Horror. Locations. These were various in and around Buckinghamshire in 1980. This episode specifically used Norcott Court, a house in Dudswell, Berkhamsted, which is in neighbouring Hertfordshire. Production, Hammer Films, Cinema Arts, and ITC Entertainment, distributed on ITV. The memorable music was composed by ex-jazz pianist Roger Webb. 
broadcast. Okay, this was episode 4 of 13, first broadcast on the 4th of October 1980. It was 54 minutes long, which, if you include the ads, because this was on ITV, would have run to about an hour. It follows Rude Awakening, which I covered in pod 509. Did I say what episode of this podcast this is? Well, if I didn't, because I'm a blathering, blithering idiot, and my memory's going, and I'm really tired, it is 513. So, this follows on from 509. Ah. Oh, media. As I said earlier, the DVD is widely available. You can get the DVD Hammer House of Horror, the complete collection from 2002, or the Blu-ray Hammer House of Horror, the complete series from 2017. The latter is quite expensive, and I would recommend the former. I mean, all these things were not filmed on HD, were they? They weren't filmed on film? Were they filmed on film or video? I, it doesn't matter. Anyway, get the DVD. It's cheaper. Or just watch it on ITVX in the UK. It became available in 2023 with their big splurge of stuff that they just dumped on ITV, along with the rebranding to ITVX, including all this Jerry Anderson stuff. There's a lot there. Okay, Zeitgeist, what was happening on the day of the first broadcast of Hammer House of Horror Growing Pains? And that was the 4th of October 1980. On the 4th of October 1980, the number one song in the UK was still as it was when we did Rude Awakening, The Police's Don't Stand So Close To Me. Football facts, even though I am not a fan of football. Although, when I was many years ago, my team was Arsenal, and I have an Arsenal-related fact, but that's in a moment. Okay, here we go. Actor Nick Mohammed, a member of the cast of Ted Lasso, that I believe is very popular and I haven't seen, was born in Leeds. And it is also the birthday, though not the day he was born, of Czech footballer, including Arsenal, Tomas Rosicky. The mother character who I'm going to talk about tonight at one stage in the script says that she is involved in Asian refugee work. I'm not sure if this is just a throwaway line in the script to highlight her charitable work as a wealthy woman, or is it specifically referring to the Vietnamese so-called boat people of whom 250,000 died escaping Vietnam following the Viet Cong victory in 1975, and the 22,500 who were admitted to the UK between 78 and 82 
despite Margaret Thatcher's extreme reluctance and racist fear-mongering. I don't know. Could be a throwaway line, could be specific to that, but that was certainly in the zeitgeist in the late 70s and early 80s. This stuff was on TV all the time, I remember. As usual, I'll play you a little clip and then I'll tell you what happens and then I'll tell you what I thought and follow that with a little trivia and any other things that I want to talk about in this episode. Rolling clip in three, two, one. He's dead. Hello, Mrs. Morton. DL83 can supplement the diet to the equivalent of half a pound of fish or meat a day. Darts on your son. He's got that plant. He's in his life! All right, my friends, I hope you enjoyed that. I just had to have another sip of water. My mouth is so dry tonight, I think it's that vocal zone. Okay. Let's talk plot. In Hammer House of Horror, Growing Pains from 1980, we begin with a boy wandering into a laboratory. He then nonchalantly consumes white powder from a flask. He retches, staggers about, flings his arm in the air, and dies rather abruptly. Shortly thereafter, his body is found by his mother and father. We cut to a later date when the mother, in return for a hefty contribution to a children's home, adopts an odd boy named James. In other words, she buys a child. Although an older child, James still clings to a dirty toy rabbit with creepy button eyes. He seems strangely blank and unemotional. On the drive home with James, the car almost crashes when the steering wheel fails and seems to drive the car randomly by itself as it passes the cemetery where William, their previous son, was buried. Other strange events occur, including maggots, on their plates during dinner, and the toy rabbit appearing bloodied. The father, working on a plant-based protein substitute, shows his miracle food to a pair of third-world dignitaries. During this meeting, James takes the family Rottweiler, Nipper, out for a walk. Nipper goes completely berserk on reaching the grave of William, runs back to the lab, through the open doors, and kills most of the rabbits. And, of course, disturbs that very important meeting. After the entourage leave, the father poisons the dog. James, in his bedroom, finds a notebook in which... His predecessor, William, writes sad poetry, describing the neglect he suffers from his ambitious, busy parents. The mother is upset when she sees it. 
poor old Deb Nipper's ghostly howls are heard, and William appears in the laboratory. He repeats his accusation of neglect and snaps the neck of the last surviving test specimen rabbit. He runs to the cemetery, pursued by his father, who is killed when he falls into an open grave. The mother finds James unconscious on William's grave. The gravestone has changed and now reads Terence Morton and his beloved son William. The food plant, shaped like a reef, sprouts out from the grave. Before the pair, the mother and James, walk away, the mother says it is for all the unloved of this earth. And that is it for the story. Let me now tell you what I think. It is very hard to feel sorry for the stupendously oafish boy William, wandering about his dad's lab and then helping himself to suspicious white powder in a flask. He's not a very young child, so it does seem incredibly dense what he does. The shortly-to-be-deceased kid is also a terrible actor. Oh, I feel a bit guilty about saying that about a child, but he's not a great actor. I mean, he redeems himself later on with some of the scenes when he's a ghost, but the death scene wasn't that great. The retching, the staggering, the arm-waving. Child actors? The whole scene did remind me of something that I've wanted to say for a while now regarding my many rewatches of the Harry Potter series that I've talked about fairly recently. I have come to the controversial conclusion that... Child actors Daniel Radcliffe and Emma Watson are good, but they're not great. Given Rupert Grint's ascendance on the screen in recent times, I'd say he outshines them in Harry Potter, even though he's a bit of a third wheel. That was quite a digression, I'm sorry. Let's get back on track and back on topic. Okay, Barbara Kellerman, the actress who plays the mother. She was a Mancunian, though she does very well the impression of a beautiful, posh and cold received pronunciation lady. It is no wonder, judging by this nasty performance that she was later cast as the evil Jadis in The Lion, The Witch and The Wardrobe in the 1988 BBC miniseries production. Taking the mother and father as a whole, they are both textbook rich, neglectful parents. They are absolutely an object of dislike in the script. You don't need to read between the lines, it's right there. 
They are shown to be self-absorbed and incredibly cold and uncaring, not just to James and William, but also to their dog, who the father murders without compunction. They are terrible people, and I would not have let the mother off the hook quite so easily at the end if I was writing that script. When the mother asks her husband to keep an eye on their second son, you just know he's going to be useless at doing that after doing such a bang-up job keeping his first son out of an unlocked laboratory full of lethal chemicals. And come to think of it, he also leaves the laboratory unlocked, allowing the dog to raid it. After that raid by the vicious and maddened Rottweiler, there is a chase in which most of the cast chase and corral the berserk dog into some kind of shed and lock it in. All those people running after the dog is done in a hilariously Benny Hill-like way. And I challenge you to disagree with me on that. (laughs) It was very, very funny. A little on the nose, but of course, Nipper, the big dog, was a Rottweiler. Because a poodle would have hardly made a fitting undead hellhound. On the subject of animals, I did not like the way the father, or rather the actor playing the father, roughly handled the rabbits in the lab scenes. Where the hell was the rabbit wrangler? Is there such a job as rabbit There must be. There must be a job as rabbit wrangler, because in arachnophobia they actually had a spider wrangler. Where where was I? (laughs) Yeah, he did not treat those rabbits well. They did not at all seem to like or be happy about being yanked up by the scruff of their necks. I mean, he does eventually support them under the feet, but it's like an afterthought. I don't know what the hell he thought he was doing, but that actor did not look like he knew how to handle animals. Maybe he was method acting as a careless, cold, scientist bastard. Okay, where were we? Oh, yeah, 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 this is good. The foreign dignitaries are walking, talking stereotypes of a bush-savvy African and a superstitious Indian. But there is one redeeming thing in the script. At least they are not entirely swayed by why the West should eat real food while the third world should make do with chemicals. As one of them, Mr. Ngenko, says, Let the West eat cake. Her granaries are full. You have butter mountains, beef mountains, wine lakes. And in the meantime, let the starving third world eat DL-83, which could presumably be grown on the moon. Bravo. Well said, Mr. Ngenko. The story did not go the way I thought it would. 
when the weirdly calm second son arrives, I was expecting him to be the spirit of vengeance. Like the bird in the Brothers Grimm's The Juniper Tree. I was expecting a science fiction chemical reanimation of William from the grave as James due to William's eating of those chemicals. Hence, James's cold, dead demeanour, because he was in fact dead. When that didn't happen, I was disappointed, as that is how I would have written it. The bones of such a horrifying story are all there, but no one strung them together. Instead, we got a cop-out ending spiced with a bit of purple. Talking of fairy tales, the father warning James to stay out of the lab was a little Charles Perrault's bluebeard. Let's move on to William. Had poor William survived, the original son, he would have been around my age today. I know that because I saw his gravestone. This is interesting because James, who I assume is supposed to be around the same age as William, has a room redecorated to look a lot like my own childhood room, albeit on a council estate, not a sprawling country house. James has biplane wallpaper, whereas mine was Action Man. He has a Hornby train set in a box. I had and still have a whole Hornby train set. There's a copy of Victor comic in his drawer, and I used to read Victor. It is interesting that, although portrayed as coming from completely different social strata, we had almost the same bedroom, and the same toys, and the same comics. I want to now move on to what I thought was the funniest scene in the film, and I almost didn't include this because somehow it wasn't in my show notes. It was such an obvious thing that I wanted to add to my show notes, and I forgot to do it. I did at the last moment. So here it is. The funniest scene in the story is the clumsy death scene of the father falling into an open grave. It is extremely comedic, because the sound of his fading cry suggests a very deep hole, a veritable chasm, but you immediately see the body in a shallow grave. The supposed tragedy made me laugh uproariously. Ah, someone in the editing should have been fired for that. (sighs) Ah... Now I'm fantasizing about being a top shot producer with the ability to hire and fire people. Ah, power. Okay, (laughs) sorry, I went on an ego trip there for a moment. Okay, Uh, finally the verdict. This is absolutely the poorest example in the series so far of a horror story and... It will not be one I'll be re-revisiting. I thought it was lacklustre, with 
truly hateable characters. And it had a limp ending. It sticks out as starkly, drastically less engaging than episodes one to three. I award it two undead hellhounds out of five only. I include the stupid and one-time-only episode rating in irony, of course. Actually, I used to give (laughs) ratings out of fives for a lot of things, because I used to think it was funny. One day there would be chainsaws, or there'd be skulls, or there'd be spaceships, depending on the genre. I stopped doing that a long time ago, because the joke wore thin, and here I am, resurrecting it. A bit like William. Good points. I liked the car, which I'm going to talk about, the one that goes out of control. I'll talk about that in the trivia. I liked Mr. Ngenko's speech. I thought that was quite a strong, powerful speech. And the boy's bedroom made me feel nostalgic for my own childhood bedroom. Also, Barbara Kellerman, the actress, is hot stuff. But, honestly, that was negated by the horrendously appalling person she portrayed. I know, don't confuse the actor with the characters they play. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I'm just telling you how it is. You would not fancy her after watching this. My god, what a bad mother. Okay. Trivia. That car. The gorgeous black with gold trim Ford Capri, almost driven off the road by the mother, is a 3-litre S Mark II. I dug a little into this, and it has been untaxed, since 1984, according to the UK Registration Database, which is far more research than I needed to do, so I just don't know what happened to it. I suppose, in my mind, I was fantasising about it because I always wanted a Capri, and having one like that, a proper badass muscle car with some proper horror provenance, would be very cool. This utterly trivial fact is included here because we are currently frantically shopping for a new car. Believe me, it is hell not having a car, and in this weather, yeah. Let me tell you, that polar vortex thingamy doodle, whatever the hell it is, Vladimir Putin's secret weather weapon, I know it isn't, but it feels like it is, when I went out to collect the Christmas present that I'm supposed to be forgetting about, that cold was so intense. So, so intense. Okay, where am I now? I'm at the end of the show. I've been speaking for more than half an hour. 38 minutes, 48 seconds, 49, 50. Let's talk about some other shows. If you enjoyed Hammer House of Horror, You might also like my ongoing classic Doctor Who revisit, 
and my all-media science fiction, fantasy, and horror show. Next up on the latter is New Who's Doctor Who Wild Blue Yonder, simply because Doctor Who is currently foremost in nerddom. I talk about other science fiction, fantasy, and horror as well, so please subscribe. Recent reviews include Totally Killer in 512. My butler, Herr Feigl Gestalt, will be literally beside himself with joy if you were to join us. A little background on Feigl, if you haven't been introduced to him yet. Feigl, formerly of the University of Ingolstadt. Yeah, sorry Feigl, I shouldn't be talking about this. What with those pesky extradition treaties, Europol, etc, etc, etc. There, there. Sorry to have brought it up, my friend. Finally. Last thing on the show. Rest in peace, Shane McGowan. Of the Pogues, who died on the 30th, and who, towards the end of his life appeared to be ageing in reverse, so it is doubly tragic. Their fantastic cover of Dirty Old Town was written about Salford, but could absolutely be the hellhole I grew up in. And I am not that sorry if you are a fellow denizen of that hellhole. Yes, I insulted the place I grew up in. It was horrible. Together with Fairy Tale of New York, those and other Pogue songs have been responsible for untold brain damage. My poor little grey cells have suffered and have contributed to an uncharacteristic amount of unruliness on my part. Again, R.I.P. Shane McGowan. And that, my strange friends, is it. This show is made by me. My name is Roy Matur. I'm a writer. Matur is spelled M-A-T-H-U-R. Yes, it is pronounced Matur. You can find more about me or get in touch at RoyMatur.com. If you want to help, please review and rate the show on whatever damn platform you listen to it on. Recommend it to a friend or mortal enemy, I don't care which. Or click on the contact or support link on the website. Goodbye, everyone, and thanks for tuning in to Captain Roy's Rusty Rocket Radio Show, the UK Geek Science Fiction Fantasy and Horror Podcast episode 513, taped on Friday the 1st of December 2023, but ending on Saturday the 2nd of December 2023 at the unholy time of 002745. Ah, got to the end of that. Got to edit this tomorrow. And pump out another episode. Mmm. I think I'm going to need a day at least to do that wild blue yonder any kind of justice. So until we speak again, thanks for listening, and bye-bye for now. Bye.
shut up traffic.